Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF. We provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our EU newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools, both with the number four. This week on Schoolhouse, we are talking with my friend and hero. He's actually a friend and hero to many, the Reverend Starsky Wilson. Starsky is a busy man. He's pastor of St. John's Church, the beloved community in St. Louis, Missouri. He is president and CEO of Deaconess Foundation, and he is co-chair of the Ferguson Commission. Welcome, Starsky. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Allison. It's always great to be with you, uh, to be with you virtually or to be with you in person. You are a, a heroine of mine, uh, so uh, I'm glad to share time and space. I've been looking forward to this conversation, Starsky, because you are an inspiration to many and um, you wear many hats and we get to explore those today. So, you know, why don't you just start by talking about how you found your way to philanthropy? I have always been bivocational, if you will. I understood even in my undergraduate studies a call to faith leadership and a call to ministry. Uh, and quite frankly, that began as a negotiation for me. I was studying political science, but I was headed into law. Uh, I understood myself to be called and began to study theology. But I never really wanted to be that preacher guy, if you will. <laughs> so the negotiation led me to work in nonprofit administrative spaces uh, with the United Way and with the Urban League, all the while serving in volunteer roles as a youth pastor or a leader of youth ministries and churches. And so from beginnings with the United Way of Greater St. Louis and then to also serving in New Orleans and in Dallas, uh, while I was in those roles, I served as a youth pastor as well in congregations. Uh, and ultimately, the opportunity showed up when I was pastoring St. John's, a uh, service that I began eight years ago uh, while I was in seminary. The opportunity came up to lead the Deaconess Foundation, which is a health conversion foundation focused and rooted in the United Church of Christ tradition and focused on children. Uh, and so the unique call for applications in the search looked for someone who was a United Church of Christ clergy, preferably, not required, but preferably, who also had a history of uh, nonprofit management and a focus in their work on children and youth. And so it was a unique intersection uh, for me that I felt called to, but I did not at the same time feel called away from the church. And so I was pleased that the Board of Trustees was willing uh, to allow me to continue to serve the church while I also served the foundation full time. And I believe over time, uh, the two missions related to faith and the orientation around philanthropy have uh, found unique intersections, uh, enlivened and kind of energized our work in both spaces. So I'm just really kind of blessed to be able to uh, do the work that I love and a high-impact way uh, in both philanthropy and in the faith community. As pastor of St. John's Church, you've been very welcoming of communities and 
individuals that the church traditionally has shunned or marginalized, and I'm thinking specifically and especially of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer brethren and sistren, how have you reconciled that past with your belief and your actions today? Yeah, I think a lot of this just requires a deep engagement of the scriptures and the best of the tradition. It has always been the case that, you know, of course, I serve a Christian church, and that the ministry of Jesus Christ has always been among uh, and with folks uh, who have lived at the margins of society, uh, whether they be poor folks uh, who recognize that Jesus was a minority, he was a Jew living under Roman occupation, and living each day among the people who were on daily subsistence. And so these matters of pushing the voice and standing in solidarity with people who are marginalized is wholly consistent with the politics and the political situation of Jesus. And so I think the best reads of Scripture that take the Scripture seriously and read them critically at the same time will find the Christian church today and other communities of faith, particularly those in the Judeo-Christian tradition, aligned with marginalized voices. And, you know, quite frankly, we read the Scripture clearly, we recognize that many of the matters that some voices of faith speak on today are never spoken to by Jesus at all. Mm-hmm. So to speak on these things in Jesus' name as if he had a definitive word about them is a bit arrogant, if not foolhardy. That's where I find my way in my space there, mm-hmm. just really unclear and deep readings of the scriptures and interpretation of the social political reality of Jesus. I talk a lot about the Black church as a home space and When we think about the trajectory of African-Americans in the world, we are a people without a home, right, in the world. So we have adopted a country that hasn't necessarily fully adopted us. We don't necessarily have a, a belonging in the world. Even folks from the diaspora, you know, my husband is West Indian and he has a connection to that place, a, a home connection to that place. And, you know, African-American people have really built a home in each other in this country. And there are manifestations of that in a variety of places. And the black church being one, uh, fraternities and sororities being another, How have you really used the Black church as a sanctuary, as a home space for people, especially people in the movement today? One of the things that happened for us at St. John's, and I think it is happening for churches across the country as we seek to make these connections, is that we were, by the coincidence of history, thrust into a particular moment in August of 2014 Mm -hmm. after uh, the state-sponsored murder and killing of Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. It caused us to be thoughtful about, quite frankly, the state-sponsored killing of Jesus. Mm. And it afforded us a unique opportunity to open ourselves to people that we did not know for the sake of our own transformation. Mm -hmm. Very concretely for us, that came in the form of an opportunity to host the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson Mm -hmm. in August of 2014. And so that was an invitation that came to us with short notice, literally 24 hours before some people across the nation were hitting the road to come to St. Louis and Ferguson Mm -hmm. because a state institution, which was previously open to the movement, decided that it would not be open to the movement. Mm -hmm. 
And with that being the case, uh, the church had a responsibility to open its doors to be safe sanctuary. I remind people that in the Western tradition, actually this comes from Europe, there was this practice of painting the doors of the church red. We Mm -hmm. still see a lot of red church doors across the U.S. We don't think about what that means. Uh, Connected to European history of the Western church, what that is is a sign that in times of war, anyone who's being chased, even by the enemy or a foreign military, if they came through those doors, they were ultimately safe. Mm. And that no one could chase, whether it is the government of the country of that church or if it is an opposed government, they do not pass those red doors. Mm-hmm. And so that being said, the concept of sanctuary is something that's deeply embedded in the history of the church and creating safe space for dialogue, for dissent is part of the work of the church over time. Mm -hmm. And so we just committed to lean into that. And so our doors have been open for, of course, that Freedom Ride. Uh, Since then, we've regularly hosted the St. Louis Action Council, a group of folks who have committed across organizations to sustain resistance through direct action uh, in the community. Our doors have been open for forums uh, for folks who have been from activists to politicians to come together and to argue it out, if you will, mm-hmm. but then also to press towards solutions to organize in our basement for direct actions across the country, to be the welcome center for Ferguson October for mm-hmm. people who are coming mm-hmm. from across the country to receive their instructions. So I think all of this is consistent with the theological declarations we make as church mm-hmm. when we say we operate in a sanctuary space. Mm-hmm. And this is work that we've got to continue to do. This became critically pointed, uh, just one other example, on the night of November 24th when the announcement of the No True Bill, the Darren Wilson case. Leading up to that, we knew that there would be outrage, likely, Mm -hmm. and we knew uh, of the tactics that police had previously used. So the question is, where would people be able to go? And so a network of churches that were in hot spots related to organized protest and resistance committed that their churches would be open all night. Mm-hmm. But part of the difficult negotiation that commitment was that we needed to communicate to police ahead of time mm-hmm. the theology of those red doors. Is that you will not, under any circumstances, encroach the threshold of this church, no matter who's inside. Yeah. And then we, of course, had to open ourselves to say anybody can come inside, mm-hmm. no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. If they get through these doors, they're safe and the police are not to come in. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is consistent with our theology. This is consistent with who the church has said it is over time, and particularly for black folks. Uh, it's critically important to have spaces that are sanctuary, that are absolutely open to all, without the unfortunate restrictions that we have heard from people of lesser theologies that seek to make themselves God by saying who can come in and who can't. That is so profound. And actually, it makes me think about schools and school buildings. And, you know, there's international law um, and treaties that have proclaimed schools as safe spaces during times of war. They are off limits when it comes to, you know, actions of war. That doesn't always 
of course, happen, but they are safe spaces. They are sanctuaries and they are places of safety too. And, you know, I really like that the dialogue for dissent, you know, and that's what schools are supposed to be cultivating. That's what they're supposed to be giving. And it really seems revolutionary to say that, you know, that red door, it's the barrier, right? On the other side of this red door, there is a place for whomever is seeking a space of sanctuary, and they are protected, they are safe in that space. You know, I appreciate you rooting us in the teachings of theology and history, which is really very important. And I think the same is true for schools and education spaces. You mentioned Ferguson, and you are co-chair of the Ferguson Commission, which was formed by the governor of Missouri just a few months after, or a few weeks even, after Michael Brown was, as you said, after the state-sponsored murder and killing of Michael Brown. What is the Ferguson Commission, and what do you hope that you will lead it to do? I want to make just a couple of correctives, for, one for the sake of my own safety and safe space in my home. Yeah. First, while there's not a current one, I'm a former co-chair of the commission itself, mm-hmm. uh, Horizon, at the end of 2015, as we completed our work of uh, the development of a set of policy recommendations for the community and for the state, uh, how we might move forward to be a more fair, just, and equitable community. And talk about that just a little bit more in a moment. The other corrective I'd like to make just um, briefly as well as to that work is that the Ferguson Commission was not appointed a few weeks late. Mm-hmm. I run down this timeline for folks because I want to affirm where leadership really came from. Mm-hmm. With the killing of Michael Brown on August 9th, a youth uprising began on August 10th, and that was sustained through all the rest of August, all of September, all of October. And it was not until the end of October that the governor responded to the calls that went first in August from our local paper and other civic settings to form a commission. Mm -hmm. So in the gap, all of the leadership was provided by grassroots, young people, neighborhood folk who were calling for action and who were moving the country and moving the community before the governor acted. I think that's critically Mm -hmm. important. The other is to say he called for it in August. He began an open process, which I think was solid to to invite anyone who wanted to be a part of the process to apply rather than making just directive appointments. Mm -hmm. We were commissioned on November 18th. The announcement of the No True Bill was November 21st, and we had our first meeting on December 1st. Mm. And so I just want to be clear that that space of leadership, that void, quite frankly, uh, of civic and corporate leadership was provided by young people before there was any commission. And they sustained that leadership even throughout the process. And so our work, uh, as I stated, was articulated in Executive Order 1415, signed by Governor Jay Nixon, mm-hmm. to guide the community in the assessment of social factors that have been exposed by the death of Michael Brown. And there was a long list, of course. These things are economic, they're educational, they're social. They have to do with uh, community stability, family stability, education, transportation, housing. And so with that wide uh, range of topics, we invited the community to help prioritize our work so that we could deliver to the community a set of policy recommendations on how we might move forward. And we were to do that by the end of 2015. And I should say, we ultimately delivered our report on September 14th, 
2015, so we're now coming up on the anniversary uh, of the delivery of the report. Mm-hmm. As we talk about that, we went about our business and community informed by the work of a scholar by the name of Lindsay Lupo. Lindsay Lupo wrote in a book called Flack Catchers, 100 Years of Riot Commission Politics in America, the ways in which we have used uprisings and managed people's energy through commissions in order uh, to make it look like executives are being responsive when they're not, Mm -hmm. and in order to put down the righteous energy of uprisings. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we understood as our responsibility uh, was to use the commission as rather an organizing tool whereby we could take the community's input rather than manage the community's energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we were able to do from December 1st, 2014, through really our last meetings in uh, December of 2015, even after we delivered the report, was to engage the voices of 3,000 citizens Mm -hmm. to marshal more than 30,000 volunteer hours and to host more than 60 meetings, public meetings, in different settings throughout the St. Louis region to take a regional approach, not just a small segmented city of Ferguson approach, to say, these are the things that are our aspirations as a community. Mm -hmm. And those aspirations, I tend to speak of in one sentence. This is what the community said, the highlights of the report, is that we desire to put youth at the center of our community's dialogue and policy discussions, Mm -hmm. that racial equity will be the aim that we seek. Mm And that in doing so, we will assure that all people have access to opportunity and justice. Mm -hmm. And so there we speak to the four core elements of the report. It's cross-cutting theme of racial equity. It's intent. On the very first page, we say we understand it's hard to talk about, but this is about race. Mm -hmm. And it's commitment uh, to youth at the center. So you see a whole set of recommendations that are built around child well-being. Uh, 80 pages, if you print it out, it's a 196-page report. 80 of those pages are centered around child well-being. They deal with things like school discipline, mm-hmm. school environment. Uh, they deal with juvenile justice matters that have shown up in our community and across the nation. And then the opportunities to thrive section focuses on economic inequities. And as we talk about those, we center issues related to housing, transportation, access, but with a core focus on economic mobility, mm-hmm. what it takes to have a family to move from one level of economic stratum to the next within a generation. And then, of course, justice for all. Uh, These matters related to policing uh, and the courts that got us here in the first place, but illustrate, quite frankly, uh, the alignment of economics to lock up poor people based upon uh, inconsistent uses of the justice system. Mm -hmm. So it's our hope that what we were able to do throughout that process was to affirm the work and to, in some ways, legitimate the work of activists and organizers throughout the St. Louis metropolitan community and deliver with them and with their input policy recommendations that can be pushed and now have the sanction of what was officially a state bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So that's what the commission was, or a state department, essentially. And now with that affirmation, they have the capacity to continue to push, uh, and some of us are pushing with them directly, some of these issues at the state level uh, in our cities uh, and in the St. Louis metropolitan region. I think that perspective and that positioning of the commission as the wind at the backs of the folks who are actually the leaders of the work 
is really instructive, certainly for philanthropy and for others in such a position. You know, it makes me think about, of course, the vision for Black Lives, the policy platform of the movement for Black Lives. And as Black Lives Matter was gaining momentum after Michael Brown was killed, you know, we heard constantly from folks who were asking, well, what do they want? What are they asking for? What is their policy platform? Although it was out there and readily accessible (laughs) and heavily repeated by activists in the movement. But now there is this policy platform that really captures all of it and is available for folks to view and see. And so, you know, with that orientation that you've described to, you know, not manage the community's energy, right, but to really propel it forward, with respect to that policy platform, how do you see the Ferguson Commission playing a role in implementation and or support of that policy platform? Yeah, I think there's significant alignment between uh, the commission's recommendations, uh, although I will be very uh, clear and transparent that the vision for Black Lives goes much further. We saw our responsibilities as regional, and again, we had a diverse set of voices that were gathered around the table, mm-hmm. from uh, corporate interests to philanthropic ones to educators, and we probably had, well, I'm sure that we had more voices for reform and reformation around our table than the policy table. I know some of the folks are at the policy table for the vision for uh, for the movement for Black Lives and the vision document. Those are more transformation voices. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful for us to be thoughtful about the distinctions between the two and to affirm those who are seeking to transform, uh, it seems to me. But I think part of our work is to continue to advance how a community can move forward on these issues and create a response that actually affirms the voices of neighbors, of affected folks. Mm -hmm. So one of the distinctions we make um, that we've seen, although we have in St. Louis and Ferguson, specifically the commission, had conversations of counsel with other communities that have seen these kinds of uh, racialized flashpoints and seen police killings, uh, we've not seen another community take the opportunity to take as expansive an approach mm-hmm. to establish a community-informed way forward that directly engages the voices of folks. So mm-hmm. I think part of our responsibility as a commission is first to hold up and be thoughtful about the model mm-hmm. for how we did this work. There was an innovation on the historic riot commission politics of America. And so we took some uh, time to document a bit of a community playbook. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had the support of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, not just of our process, but to say, document this process because unfortunately you won't be the last ones. Mm -hmm. And so that community playbook is part of it. And part of what we're saying in it is that you've got to turn to the community for the answers, not turn to the PhDs. Listen to them, but don't turn to them. As uh, you know, taking stuff off the shelf as the answer. So I think that's part of our responsibility. Mm-hmm. We also have the responsibility that this was a diverse group of commissioners with voices that get to go in different places. So my voice comes back into the world of philanthropy explicitly. Mm-hmm. My voice comes into the world of faith, uh, as well as the voice of Reverend Tracy Blackman, my dear friend and sister, mm-hmm. who's now the executive minister for Justice and Witness Ministries for the United Church of Christ, mm-hmm. that we take the work that we did there and we take it into the space of faith. My co-chair, Rich McClure, uh, was the president of our local chamber, the president of um the collaboration of the largest 33 employers in the San Luis Metropolitan community. 
he has to take his voice back to the corporate community and seek to affirm and align these recommendations with the actions of these disparate uh, sectors. So that's part of our work now, uh, and we have the ongoing work, and we set up a vehicle called Forward Through Ferguson, mm-hmm. which follows the name of our report, Forward Through Ferguson, which can be found at forwardthroughferguson.org. We've also set up a nonprofit uh, that has the responsibility for educating the community on racial equity mm-hmm. and helping to support collaboratives that are advancing the policy recommendations in those four buckets of racial equity, opportunities to thrive, youth at the center, and justice for all. Mm-hmm. And so in as much as we are helping to raise funds and support and also seek to drive the actions and support the education of the community, those are things that we have responsibility for, both individually as commissioners going back into these different sectors, and then also collectively as we set up these follow-up mechanisms so that the report's recommendations don't become uh, dust on a shelf. You mentioned history and building forward by understanding history. And I I keep saying that one day I'm going to be like you and and go back to school for my PhD, like like you are doing right now. You know, I think a law degree is certainly important, but a a PhD will really let me get my hands into the scholarship and, and thinking deeply on issues of importance. But if I ever get there, I would really love to study history. You know, mostly because things go in cycles and what we see today likely has happened before, uh, whatever it is that we're we're seeing today. So what do you see today in today's world that really kind of feels familiar to you just in your genetic memory and your historical memory? What cycles are we repeating right now? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, So part of this gets to (laughs) the battles in question. So as I've sought to um, take the work that we've learned about and listen deeply to the voices of the BLM movement uh, and specifically the vision document. One of the most controversial matters that came up and the dialogue there was the conversation related to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I consider as a, as a person of faith, the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement. Mm-hmm. And it is helpful because... I also remember that a lot of folks early on in this moment, this movement moment, wanted to make parallels to the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. We wanted to reach two generations ago to suggest that, you know, this is how we ought to operate. Right, right. And I remember having a conversation, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with Patrice Cullors, one of the co creators of Black Lives Matter Network. Mm-hmm that the problem with folks right now in this moment is they're looking for me and they should be looking for you, Patrice. So, you know, they're looking for the relatively young preacher who wears white shirts and dark suits and ties. Because Because that's familiar. Right, that's familiar civil rights movement stuff. Mm -hmm. But the challenge what the BDS and the Israel-Palestine conversation reminds us of is that we don't have to go two generations ago. We only have to go one mm-hmm. because it was 1994 when we were dealing with the breakdown of apartheid in South Africa. And it was then when we were using boycott, divestment, and sanctions approaches to place pressure on South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so as we're thoughtful about this, I think that's what we're reliving. I yeah. think we're just a generation removed from the last time we had this conversation and it was centered in South Africa uh, and it had implications here. And because it didn't, you know, because it wasn't so present for us in the U.S., mm-hmm. we think back to civil rights rather than thinking back to the anti-apartheid movement 
uh, this was crystallized for me that I had the occasion in the spring of 2015 to bring Reverend Dr. Alan Busak to St. Louis and Ferguson to speak at our church and to meet some movement folks. Mm-hmm. Dr. Busak was the leader of the South African Council of Churches during the apartheid movement. And in much of the early movement, he called for the establishment of the United Democratic Front, Mm -hmm. which was a people-based democratic movement that critiqued not only uh, the apartheid government, but also critiqued the African National Congress for its atrocities. Mm -hmm. And because he believed, quite frankly, that there needed to be always a, a political space that had voices that were black and white for Afrikaans and for whites all, mm-hmm. and, and that was rurally based and people-based. So with that, he came, and one of the things that happened, he sat in the Ferguson Burger Bar talking to uh, members of the Millennial Activists United. Mm-hmm. He said to them, he said, when I saw you, when I saw you in Ferguson, mm-hmm. my soul immediately remembered Soweto. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he was pushed back to 1976. Right, He was pushed back to the youth, the high school, the youth uprising in Soweto by the images of what he saw in Ferguson. And I think that's what we are experiencing again. Yeah. Uh, and I think even our approaches should be thoughtfully informed by what we saw in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so as we think about philanthropy for a moment, us being very intentional about where our corpus and philanthropy, where our portfolio, our endowments, and our investment portfolios are invested is critically important to how we amplify the voices of the vision for Black lives. Mm -hmm. If we can be thoughtful about BDS commitments in our portfolios, then we're being really faithful, right? Not just with the resources that we invest from a grant-making standpoint, but those that we steward from an investment standpoint. That has to be a critical element of the conversations we're having right now as well. Your work is hard, Starsky. Last week, the news hit that Darren Seals, an activist in Ferguson and and co-founder of Hands Up United, had been brutally murdered. And in many ways, Ferguson is is viewed as ground zero for the growth of Black Lives Matter and the social justice activism that we've seen from, you know, folks like Jesse Williams and Colin Kaepernick and Beyonce and others who are really stepping forward to use their voices and, and their platform in the name of justice. But ground zero is hard. How do you maintain and how do you counsel other people? in the work to maintain. Thank you for acknowledging the difficulty of this for all of us, and specifically those of us uh, in St. Louis and Ferguson, because I don't know that we always acknowledge and recognize it. Mm-hmm. And because we don't always acknowledge and recognize it, we don't acknowledge and recognize the toll that it takes upon us individually and the impacts of the trauma on our relationships. Mm-hmm. And so uh, part of the difficulty we see, and we see it uniquely even in this moment uh, with respect to um, the loss uh, of Darren Seals, who is universally regarded as a critical and major voice and a challenging, loving presence uh, for this movement, uh, both in Ferguson and uh, across the country. I, I don't know that I do well quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I manage well the uh, multiple relationships that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. You know, those activists uh, on the ground and people who are still sustaining 
uh, resistance. I mean, this Sunday, uh, there was an active open protest in, in the Central West End in St. Louis by folks calling for clarity around Darren's death because there's still uh, a lot of questions about how he was killed, where he was killed, there are no suspects. Mm-hmm. And he had been previously challenged um, by police mm-hmm. and clearly was being monitored. So I don't know that we manage these things very well. Um, I think we've got a lot of work to do in caring for our own trauma and making accessible modes of self-care for communities who don't have access to do some of the things that I do get to do. While I work a lot, um, I actually do get an opportunity to leave a community with my family for a week and, and hang out uh, in a space where I can focus only on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually do get the occasion to sit every now and then in a hotel room by myself and, and write mm-hmm. uh, and reflect. But everybody doesn't get the opportunity to do that. So that people are living in the trauma and violence of poverty and of communal violence and shootings every day and a fear of the police every day. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just got to own that I'm, I'm privileged in this way. And I got a responsibility to continue to deploy that, that privilege on behalf of others. So for me, uh, the rooting and grounding in the church, the living relationships with God and with the members of that community uh, give me uh, renewal uh, and strength. And the uh, occasion for respite for me has to be complete when it is, right? So when I go into my house, I turn off my phone so that I can be totally and completely with my family. When I go uh, away on trips every now and then, if it's within four hours, I drive uh, so that I can have a space to think without, you know, radio or anything uh, for clarity of thought and of mind and sometimes of centering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I recognize that, you know, the work is hard when you have to live in it. Uh, it's much harder. And so there are a whole lot of folks who don't have these these privileges, yeah. unfortunately. That vulnerability and, and pain is very real and it, it's part of the human experience and Today's trauma is certainly compounded by historical trauma, and um, I thank you for being willing to speak that. Stories are are really important. Uh, They're an important part of the work that we do. That anecdotal evidence is really critical to move systems in the right direction, to move public minds and hearts. We're always asking for and looking for stories just as people. Um, and, and so we often close this show with a story from our guests. So what is your story, Starsky Wilson? Who are you and why is this work so important to you? Thank you. Um, you know, I am um, shaped by a number of experiences. Um, the earliest story I really remember that is formative for me is um, the goodbye that I uh, had to give um, and recognize it was a goodbye. Uh, but the goodbye I received from my father at the age of three at a local store. Uh, I recall the things that he purchased from me. Uh, I recall them in a context that they were wholly inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> uh, I recall a two liter of soda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I recall some small snacks. And I recall receiving them at a neighborhood market not far from the apartments where we lived in Dallas, Texas. You know, noting that that's the last time I saw my father. Mm-hmm. And that goodbye next connects with uh, the significant uh, story of uh, me connecting really closely with my brother after he had been shot in the leg and communal violence. And really appreciating the time that I had to 
nurturing, take care of him when he couldn't take care of himself as his little brother, mm-hmm. uh, because it helped me to reconnect our relationship that had been kind of separated by the fact that he was spending more time out in the neighborhood and appreciating that that time even more when shortly after, um, just about a year later, I was visited with images of of his death when he was murdered by a friend's arrival, if you will, in the drug game in the streets when that friend's rival came over to the house where my brother was visiting and murdered him, murdered the friend, murdered the friend's brother and even their grandmother, everyone who was in the house. And so in so many ways, these experiences of um, loss and connection, of trauma and violence that have to do with the closest presence of men in my own life have shaped and formed me for this work. And in many ways, we're triggered, we're triggered on August 9th in a wholly different way. Mm. All of these stories were, um, over the course and time of my life, also placed in conversation with communities of faith. My teacher in vacation Bible school and Sunday school, Troy Dunlow at Bed Eaton Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. My mother, who uh, was always uh, either a youth director or a training union director in my church, a leader in Christian education uh, that helped to shape and inform me, and people like uh, my brother and elder uh, Kevin Atkins, a young minister who served the youth of my church when I was a teenager. And so those situations of loss uh, in neighborhood and community and personal family life were always balanced by the presence of faith in God and the faith community. And so it was crystallized when I preached my first sermon uh, when I was in college and uh, my mother stood up after I preached. She had never told me, she talked about how when I was a baby, my first pastor told her that I would be a preacher. And she said... I don't know how to raise no preacher. <laughs> she, had, she had the experience, quite frankly, of the fact that I had two uncles who were also preachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't a positive narrative um, at that point for either one. She really didn't want that for me. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't know how to raise a preacher. And because she's a single mom, she said, I really don't mind raising a preacher by myself. Mm-hmm. But she said then, but thankfully, I never have had to because the church has always been with me. Mm-hmm. And so that's my story, is that through the loss and through the difficulty and pain and trauma, um, God and the church have always been with me, helping to shape me. And so I owe all that I have to God and and, um, to be that witness wherever I go, uh, to try to offer that to other people, wherever they find themselves. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Thank you. You like, you know... You like conscious over and whatnot. This is, this is great. I don't know when you're gonna get a uh, get time to do your PhD. You got to, you know. I know. You got to take this show on the road. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna use that as my conscious Oprah. I'm using that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting it somewhere. I don't know where. I'm putting it somewhere. Oh, that's great. That's great. Starsky Wilson is pastor of St. John's Church, the beloved community in St. Louis, Missouri. He is president and CEO of Deaconess Foundation, and he is the former co-chair of the Ferguson Commission. Starsky, thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse today. This has been my absolute pleasure. 
Thank you, Allison, for having me, and thanks to all the folks who are following your heroic leadership. God bless you. God bless you. And if, if folks want to find you, how can they do that online website or social media presence? Our website at Deaconess is just deaconess.org. Uh, our church is sjucctl.org. And on social media, I am R-E-V Starsky, S-T-A-R-S-K-Y, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and I'm also on Facebook by my name. Thanks to everyone for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening and have a wonderful week.